Reformation. Let me get into this message, which is based on a verse of Scripture in Psalm chapter 11, and I'll get to that in a minute. When pop culture transforms a holy day into a holiday, it almost always manages to focus on the wrong side of the equation. Let me give you a few examples. <clears throat> the number of shopping days left until Christmas is not as important as that 12-day period between Christmas, the Christmas Day miracle and the season of Epiphany when we celebrate the, the coming of the wise men to celebrate. Here's another one. A huge party, Mardi Gras, on Fat Tuesday is not nearly as important as the 40 days of Lent that follow. See what I'm getting at? Here's another one. Eating all your chocolate bunnies before breakfast on Easter morning is not as important as celebrating a resurrection faith at Easter worship that day. Amen? And on Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, while the world is preparing to throw itself a, a spooky, kooky, All Hallows' Eve party, Halloween is not as important as is the celebration that it fronts for. And those are All Saints' Day and All Souls' Day. And you're saying, well, Pastor, what are those? Well, outwitting spooky spirits on Halloween is not essential to Christian discipleship. But remembering the saints is. The saints in our families, for instance. You know, celebrating our ancestors in the faith, those men and women, some some of them known, some of them unknown, uh, who lived and died and furthering the Christian faith. That's, that's the holy day the church needs to hold up to the world. Last weekend, I was at Martin's Chapel, Texas. Don't tell me, don't ask me where it is because I couldn't pinpoint it, couldn't even find it on a map. I told somebody this morning that my GPS told me to make this last turn onto such and such a road, and the location I'm looking for is the third, is the third oak past it. Well, not quite, but it was out there in the middle of nowhere. That's, that's where my, my grandfather that I never knew loaned a piece of property to a group called Nazarenes who were wanting to hold a revival, and that's where my dad That's where my faith started. It's where my dad found the Lord. That's where he <clears throat> got a call to preach and where he preached his first sermon out underneath a brush arbor under a giant oak tree that's still standing. And I walked those grounds last week. We need to remember our heritage. This is going to go longer than I expected since you're not helping me at all. The Roman Catholic 
church calendar still establishes a two-day series of special masses and prayers that follow All Hallows' Eve, All Saints' Day on November 1, All Souls' Day on November 2nd. All Saints' Day commemorates the faithful who, according to the church, have achieved heavenly status. All Saints' Day commemorates the faithful who, according to the church, have, have done that. But All Souls' Day is a day to pray for family members and all those unsung saints of the church. There's, there's an argument that can be made for All Saints' Day and All Souls' Day being the most under-celebrated church holiday in the post-Reformation church. Before the Reformation, some overzealous fundraisers uh, gladly granted what was called an indulgence to those who attended church services on All Saints and All Souls Day. That meant that if you attended church on those days and gave a certain amount of money, you automatically released one person from purgatory. Well, the problem with that was that eventually the church ended up with a revolving door of visitors. It was like buying a fistful of lottery tickets instead of betting on just one number, better odds, I guess. I, I, do I need to ask how many bought a lottery ticket in the last two weeks? Uh, I'd better not do that, had I? Well, um, what happened was that people with dead relatives, uh, lots of them, would enter into the church, speak the name of their deceased loved one, give a little uh, offering, and then leave the church and then turn around and go right back in do it all over again, assuring each time that they went back in and said the name of a relative that they were freeing another person from purgatory. And then on a, on a hot day in July, 1505, a lonely traveler was trudging over the parched road on the outskirts of, a, of the German village of Soderheim. And as he approached the village, the sky all of a sudden became overcast, and suddenly there was a shower, and then there was a, a thundering storm that came in, a bolt of lightning broke through the gloom and knocked this young man to the ground. Struggling to get up, he cried out in terror, St. Anne, St. Anne, help me, I'll become a monk. This man who had called on a saint was later to repudiate the cult of the saints. And he who vowed to become a monk was later to renounce monasticism. A loyal son of the Catholic Church, he was later to shatter the structure of that whole medieval Catholicism, and a devoted servant of the Pope, he was later to identify all the popes with the Antichrist. Now, that young man was Martin Luther who in 1517, 501 years ago, this week, nailed 
95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg and four years later defended that action with these memorable words, my conscience is captive to the Word of God, he said. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. And then he said these words, here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Mon and I were on a trip, a road trip, many years ago, really before much interstate roads, many interstate roads were built. And we were going through the south, and, and uh, we were in Georgia. <clears throat> we were in one of those areas where we didn't have a clue as to where we were. And so we were looking for somebody to ask directions. We found um, a house, maybe. It had a rocking chair out in the front porch, and there was a lady, a woman, uh, rocking back and forth. She was an elderly woman. And if I remember right, maybe I'm over-dramatizing the picture in my mind, but I think she had a pipe in her, in her mouth. You got the picture? Um, Ann's got it. I can hear. She's rocking back and forth, and we pull up. If I remember right, we had a pink Ford, which was in itself a whole other story. But we pull up, and we park, and I, I said, I'll get out and go ask for directions, and I went up, and she was a woman of very few words, and she gave me very little help. And when, we, when I got back in the car, Amanda said something like, I, I don't think she has a clue as to what's going on in the outside world. And I think she was right. But my response was, let's not tell her. Like Martin Luther... You can't keep silent in an evil time. I speak as an individual, as a former pastor of Dallas First Church, a former pastor for 47 years. I thought I was done pastoring when I left here, and three months later went to be an interim pastor for three and a half, two and a half years. I'm an American by birth a Christian by second birth, a Nazarene by choice and conviction. I'm not interested in theological fads that change as, as often as the Paris fashion industry changes. I'm, I'm not interested in spiritual adolescence being tossed about with every wind of doctrine that comes down the pike. In fact, I'm tired of some things, quite frankly. Can I get some things off my chest today? Is that all right with you? Well, I'm going to do it anyway, so. I, I, I'm tired of hearing in some quarters that the Church of the Nazarene should get away from its humble beginnings and shake the 
hayseed out of its hair and come of age. I'm tired of, of modern efforts to force a counterfeit kingdom of heaven on a sinful society and call it good. I'm tired of making moral issues out of political projects. I'm tired of our bragging about how sophisticated we are when we've bought more gold bricks and white elephants than any crowd since Adam here in our day. I'm tired of little teachers and professors who enjoy brainwashing young students into disbelieving the Bible. I'm tired of popular preachers <clears throat> that twist God's Word into meeting their own ends and lining their own pockets. Nobody's agreeing with me, so I'm just going to keep going. I, I, I'm tired of seeing the stars and stripes disrespected and our great American heroes of the past smeared. I'm tired of hearing sin called a sickness, that the alcoholic is just ill and alcoholism is only a disease, the only one that I know of that we spend billions of dollars every year to perpetuate, that liars are only extroverts with lively imaginations, and that murderers are just victims of childhood traumatic experiences. I'm tired of seeing adultery recognized in the slums, but not in Washington or Hollywood and made respectable. I'm tired of experts who, who know all the answers but have never found out what the questions are. Hello? I'm tired of the joke that we call progress when we've learned how to lengthen life but haven't learned how to deepen it. I'm, I'm tired of the stupidity of our smartness. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Well. We've polluted the air we breathe and the water in our rivers, and our city has become a jungle of crime in which, which any of us are, or all of us are afraid to walk down the streets alone day or night. We've invented television, but what, what's worth watching? We've invented computers to do our thinking, but really, who's doing any thinking anyway? We, we have more leisure time, but take a, take a look at the way we're using our leisure time. Men and women used to have visions of God, but now they see visions by smoking some little weed or, or snorting some little white powder or, or burning some little cube and putting that powder up their nose. I, I'm tired of the regimentation of humanity into one faceless mass the sneaking, subtle takeover of the individual by the state. We've become a social security number with a wallet full of plastic, tagged, labeled, cataloged, and quite frankly, I think, ready for the mark of the beast. It's a pretty dismal mess that I've just pictured. What can we believe in such a time as this? I like what the 19th century humorist and contemporary of Mark 
Twain, a guy by the name of Josh Billings. He once said, I'd rather know a few things for certain than to be sure of a lot of things that just ain't so. I'll let that sink in. So on this Reformation Sunday, I want to name a few things for certain on which I stand, and I hope you stand with me. In Psalm 11:3, the psalmist wrote, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, like Martin Luther and St. Paul before him, here I stand. First of all, I'm old-fashioned enough to, to say I believe in the Bible as the Word of God. Every word of it, I don't understand it all, but I stand on it. It's not a myth. It's a miracle, really, to get 66 books and all those writers to think and to put it together and to be inspired with the Holy Spirit and still have a cohesive unit with one story from beginning to end. I think that's a pretty big miracle. I believe in the Bible as the Word of God. It doesn't need our vindication, although the archaeologists and the scientists discover evidence almost every day to shut the critic's mouth. And on that rock, I stand. Do you believe that? Say it with me. And on that rock, I stand. Secondly, I believe in the Ten Commandments. Uh, you know, that's, I, I, I'm tired of the new freedom that tosses the Ten Commandments out the window and doesn't know the difference between love and lust. Love doesn't annul the Ten Commandments. Love doesn't worship other gods, doesn't make any graven images. Love, love keeps the Lord's day. It honors dad and mom. Love doesn't kill, doesn't steal, doesn't commit adultery, doesn't covet. The Ten Commandments are the bedrock of our moral and civil code and on that rock I stand. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that He was born of the Virgin Mary. That's kind of old-fashioned. Otherwise, if He would have been born outside of marriage, I'm not interested in that kind of Savior. Some say, well, Pastor, only Luke records the virgin birth, and I simply say to them, how many times does God have to say it before you believe it? I believe the record God gave of His Son, that He is the Son of God, and He was born of the Virgin Mary. And on that rock I stand. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. He didn't merely come to teach, to be an example, or even to die the death of a, of a martyr, he came to do something about humanity's main problem, which includes all of our other problems, too. Congress is not going to stand up and say the real problem in America is sin. The United Nations is not going to stand up and say, We've got a whole bunch of problems in the world, but the real problem in our world is sin. That just ain't going to happen. 
You won't hear it at UT or Tech or A&M. You're not going to hear it up in Richardson at TI for sure. You're not going to hear it at the welfare office or in the state capitol in Austin. There are some people down there who believe it, but you're, it's not going to come out of the state capitol. They're all trying to deal with the problem by sweeping out the cobwebs and forgetting that the spider is still there, the spider being sin. And Jesus died to save us all from our sins. Say it with me. And on that rock I stand. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I don't, I don't worship a ghost, as some might say I do. The world knows he died, but the church knows he rose from the dead. He could have appeared to Herod and Pilate. He could, could have put on this great big demonstration in Jerusalem with laser lights and created the greatest sensation of all time, but he didn't do that. He chose to reveal himself only to his disciples. Now, if I was planning that, I wouldn't have done it that way. You know, I would want the most number of people possible to see me risen from the dead. And he doesn't do it that way. The resurrection is the greatest secret, and the church is the greatest secret order, the greatest secret holder of all time. I accept the fact of the resurrection and have entered into the experience of it in my identification with Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. How about you? I live in the power of the resurrection, and I'm waiting the final fulfillment of it. And on that rock, I stand. I believe that Jesus is coming back personally. I believe He's coming back for you and me. It could be, it could be any day. It could be today. Wouldn't it be something if sitting, sitting at, the, <clears throat> at the lunch table, all of a sudden, we're on the way up? We look down, all those people are saying, what's going on? That's, that's what's going to happen. You know, I'm just old-fashioned enough to believe. Paul Harvey once said, it's the Christian's conviction that Christ will return and take over when mortals have made a hopeless mess of self-government. Well, if that's true, we're ready, you know? If ever humankind has gotten itself into one unholy mess, it's right now. <clears throat> Even the church has gotten so busy puttering around, puttering around doing uh, its thing, puttering around here, and that she scarcely lifts her eyes heavenward to pray the prayer that we see in Scripture. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Wouldn't you think the subject would be on our minds and on our lips all the time? The Lord's return 
is the unwanted stepchild in the family of church doctrine. Go to any seminary today, and the, the study of eschatology, the study of last things, is given very, very little time. We get more worked up over the order of events that will happen when he comes, or even when he's coming, than we do over the fact that he will return, return, and it may be soon, and we better get ready, and we better get as many ready as we can. And on that rock, I stand. I believe that Jesus is the answer to every problem, past, present, and future. Just like I believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God and contains everything we need for salvation. I believe that Jesus is the answer to every problem that we can think of. I think He's the answer to your problem and my problem. I think He's the answer to the Mideast. I think he's the answer to any problem that you can think of. The Bible indicates that by him all things consist. In him we're complete. For all that he is, I take him. For all my needs, I, I trust him. For every blessing that he's given me, I thank him. I believe that all who trust him have eternal life, and all others will live. Now, this isn't very popular. And if you don't want to hear the unpopular, put your hands over your ears. I believe that all others will live in conscious torment forever in a place we call hell. That'd be another good place to say amen. I'm losing my voice. You can tell I haven't done this in a while. One pastor was preaching on hell, and a member got upset with him and objected to him uh, preaching and wanted him to say, preach more about the meek and lowly Jesus. But most of that pastor's message and information about hell came from the meek and lowly Jesus. You know, for example, in Mark chapter 9, verses 48 and 49, Jesus took the, the the last verse of Isaiah and the garbage heap outside Jerusalem and gave us the most fearful picture of hell on record. I believe in it because Jesus believed in it. And on that rock I stand. I've got one more and then I'll stop. I believe in heaven, too. Believe in heaven? As far back as I can remember as a small child, we moved to the river, the Ohio River town of Portsmouth, Ohio. That's a place where 
My mother nearly washed my mouth out with soap when I came home saying, weans and ewans. That's how they talk in Ohio, in Portsmouth, Ohio. I never said it again. But as a small child down there in that river town where my dad went to pastor and was building a church, I can hear them singing today. There's a land that is fairer than day, and by faith I can see it afar. It was at four years of age at that church that I went up to my mother who was playing the organ for the invitation that night and asked her if I could go to the altar. Before she got down from the organ to come pray with me, she said, why do you want to go to the altar? She knew why because that week I'd stolen a piece of candy from the corner grocery store under the guise, as I told my father, well, he always gives it to me, he just wasn't there. It was still stealing to that young mind. And I made up my mind as we were singing, there's a land that's fairer than day, and by faith I can see it afar. I made up my mind that that's a place that I want to go. Today, that, determine, that determination is embedded in my heart and mind more securely than ever before. There's always been those who have blasted the idea of heaven. Bible critics in pulpits and universities and commentaries that I have in my library have tried to dim my boyish faith. There was a time heaven seemed farther away than when I was a boy. But today, let me tell you folks, that, that hope bri uh, burns brighter than ever before. You see, I have a Savior's word about heaven. He said in John chapter 14, in my Father's house are many rooms. And then he added, if it, if it weren't so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? Well, that settles it for me, folks. If it weren't true, he would have let us know. I could take his word for it. Can you? In a world gone mad, no, no storms of time can erase hope and heaven. I, I sing with the hymn writer, Henry Light, perish every fond ambition, all I've sought and hoped and known. Yet how rich is my condition, God and heaven are still my own. And on that rock I stand. Now, I know this is all a bit old-fashioned, 
Call me old-fashioned if you want. I know I'm old, but call me old-fashioned if, if you want. The greatest hindrance to many people's salvation is not their badness. Listen to me. The greatest hindrance to many people's salvation is their goodness. The good that's just not good enough. You remember the Pharisees? They went to church every, every week. They read the Scriptures daily. They prayed in public at the top of their lungs. They were tithers. They, they won others to their way of life and their belief. But that was not good enough. One noted preacher of the 19th century preached a mighty sermon. He titled that sermon, The Stupidity of the Specialists. The Stupidity of the Specialists. I love it. His text was from Luke 20, verse 17. And it says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In other words, he pointed out that the stone that the builders rejected, the builders were the experts, the specialists. They were the ones who rejected him, the stupidity of the specialists. Our civilization is crumbling because the experts have rejected the only foundation that will endure, and that is Jesus Christ. The psalmist said, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Paul answered in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, when he said, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And on that rock I stand. Say it with me. And on that rock I stand. Say it again. And on that rock I stand. Let me ask you this morning. What are you standing on? Did you find yourself agreeing with the list of the things that I'm tired of? Maybe you'd like to add a few more. What are you standing on this morning? 501 years ago, Martin Luther took his life and his vocation in his hands and pinned to the community bulletin board the church door at Wittenberg the 95 things he stood for that were against the church. Are you standing on the Bible, on the Ten Commandments, the divinity of Jesus, His atonement, His resurrection, His final return? Are you looking to Him for the answer to all of your problems? 
Are you tired of the life you're living? Let me tell you this morning, you can make a new start and stand on the solid rock. Say it again with me. And on that rock I stand. 